You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For July 11, 2018, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As the energy transition proceeds on the electricity grid, the role of regulators is becoming increasingly vital. But it's an inherently difficult role in which they must protect the public interest on one hand, while on the other hand, literally deciding how much money utilities may earn and how they may earn it. Regulators are also continually challenged to somehow keep one foot in the regulated industry context of the past while trying to step with the other into the future. And as we have seen, particularly over the past few years, that's becoming an increasingly difficult thing to do, rather like keeping one foot on the dock and one foot on the boat as it pulls away and heads for open water. One need to look no further than the recent struggles playing out between the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC, the regulators in various states who may be trying to advance energy transition, or who may be trying to preserve their nuclear and coal power plants that can no longer compete in wholesale markets, and the wholesale market operators themselves, known as Regional Transmission Organizations, or RTOs, and Independent System Operators, or ISOs, to see how difficult it has become to grapple with the challenges of energy transition. Regulators must both create new opportunities for new energy resources like storage systems and distributed wind and solar systems, and somehow provide an opportunity for the owners of old, unneeded, and unwanted assets to gracefully exit or even to force them out if they won't leave of their own volition. And that's only where the regulators' challenges start. They must also contend with industry trade groups who can afford to fund a nearly unlimited stream of legal challenges and delay tactics, as well as with consumer advocates who have become accustomed to resisting any and every investment that a utility might make and try to recover the cost of through customer bills, even when those investments would result in a cleaner, more efficient, and more environmentally sound society. Regulators must respond to the guidance or even the demands of state lawmakers and governors, and they must hear the complaints of the public, no matter how wise or misguided their views may be. And ultimately, they must find a path through this thicket of competing interests that results in the best possible outcome for the constituents they are charged with protecting. Ideally, a grid that's somehow optimized for numerous things that are often in natural tension with each other, things like affordability, reliability, suitability, and cleanliness. Worse yet, many regulators really aren't equipped to even sort through the competing claims and petitions that are brought before them because they oftentimes concern highly technical questions that only a power system engineer or a market design expert could properly evaluate. Indeed, many regulators are simply political appointees who may or may not have any appropriate technical expertise, or officials who are elected by the public who, in turn, may not have any way to evaluate the technical expertise of the people they're electing. Consequently, it has become common or even somewhat expected that regulators will, at some level or another, become dependent on the guidance of the companies they're supposed to regulate, and that those companies will seek in every possible way to gain as much leverage or control over their regulators as they can, a problem known as regulatory capture, which is the topic of this episode. 
Now, this may seem like an esoteric subject, and it is, but it's also a vitally important one to understand, particularly in light of some of the recent cases we have discussed on this show, from utility holding companies seeking to preserve their unwanted assets, to companies that have wasted tens of billions of dollars of customer money outright, to numerous attempts to change the rules of wholesale markets to benefit one sort of energy asset or another. Indeed, we have recently seen instances where regulatory commission staff recommended one course of action, but the commissioners took the opposite course, leaving us to rightfully wonder why, and whose hands are in whose pockets. So I'm very pleased that our guest in this episode is here to help us understand what regulators do, the challenges they face, and the problem of regulatory capture more generally. Gary Wolfram is a professor and the director of economics and political economy at Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan, about 90 miles west of Detroit. He has published extensively on public policy and taxpayer rights, on the role of government in capitalist market economies, and on the governance and incentive structure of utilities. And believe me when I tell you that this interview will be a lot more accessible and interesting than my dry description of it may make it sound. Then in the news segment of this show, we'll talk about some startling developments in which utilities have decided to refocus their future investments around wind and solar instead of conventional gas plants, a starkly plain case of political corruption and interference in a regulatory commission election. We'll look at the recent FERC decisions regarding proposals to change the way that capacity markets work on the PJM interconnection, and we'll look at another fascinating transition from diesel to electric power ferries in the U.S., but first, our conversation with Gary Wolfram, recorded June 4th, 2018. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Gary, to the Energy Transition Show. Well, thank you for having me. Our main topic today is regulatory capture, but before we get into that, I feel like I should probably set a little more context, explain what utility regulators do in the U.S. and kind of what we mean by regulatory capture. So as I understand it, regulators are state officials who are responsible for deciding what utility customers in their states should have to pay for and what they should not have to pay for. And in the U.S., these regulatory bodies are known by various names, such as public utility commissions or public service commissions, and they preside over various kinds of investments made by private utility companies, where the utilities are allowed to recover those investments plus a predetermined profit margin by increasing the rates that make up a customer's bill. And sometimes those costs are recovered via the charge for energy, the per kilowatt hour charge on a customer bill, and other times they're recovered through separate itemized fees on the customer's bill, such as for transmission and distribution or decommissioning a nuclear plant or what have you. But in the end, the customer pays for everything generally, and it's essentially the regulator's job to be a good watchdog and to make sure that customers are only being forced to pay for things that are, in the regulatory language, just and reasonable. So, so far so good? Yes. Basically, what we have is a regulated monopoly. And how we started out was, just to give you a little background, in late 1880s, there was a battle between Edison and Tesla on direct current versus alternating current. And direct current means that you have small facilities, they're close to the customer, whereas alternating current has large facilities that are transported utility over large distances. So you have large economies of scale. Well, it turns out that Tesla won. Samuel Insull took advantage of Tesla's technology and basically consolidated several companies in Illinois and then suggested that regulated monopoly model is the way to go. And states began with Wisconsin and New York in 1907, regulating utilities, giving you a monopoly, setting what the rates might be. And by 1914, 45 states had regulatory agencies. In 1935, the Federal Power Act brought the federal government into regulating transmission across state lines. 
But the idea is that utilities were a natural monopoly and price should be limited by government and monopoly would then get a guaranteed rate of return. And this lasted till about the 1970s when the idea that you could have competition began to develop in the economics profession and that led to some movements at the federal level on transmission and unbundling of the transmission facilities. But still, states continue to regulate the generation and the distribution. Okay. And the things that a regulator may have to rule on can vary depending on whether the state has what's called a deregulated utility market. And even those terms, I think, are a bit confusing because the utilities operating in a, quote, deregulated market are still regulated. The only kinds of utilities in the U.S. that are not subject to state regulators are municipal utilities, which are operated by a city or some municipality and owned by the public, and rural cooperatives, which are usually small, self-organizing and self-governing utilities serving rural areas with very low population density, like farming or ranching areas. And it's up to each state legislature to decide if it's going to have a regulated or a deregulated utility industry. Is that right? That's correct. But what we really mainly mean by a deregulated state is that the the individual consumer has the ability to choose who they're going to buy their electricity from. And there's a whole variation of that. But If there's a really nice piece called the 50-State Index of Energy Regulation that the Pacific Research Institute has, then goes through for all the energy, but it looks at electricity as well. And so each state does decide what they're going to allow in terms of competition and whether they're going to separate the generation from the distribution. Now, the federal government deals with interstate transmission of utilities. For example, 1978 PURPA Act required investor-owned utilities, that is the non-municipalities that you were talking about, they have to purchase power from qualified facilities, which are basically small utility generators. And that sort of led to eventually a functional separation of transmission in 1996. So basically the federal government controls the transmission in terms of regulation and the states control whether they're going to allow you to have access to any individual generator or whether you're going to have to buy your electricity from a monopoly provider. Right. And as we discussed in episode 70, all the different jurisdictions, the state, federal, RTO, ISO, etc., with Michael Panfil. So our listeners are certainly familiar with the regulatory jurisdiction issues there. And we've certainly discussed PURPA as well previously on the show, but I'm glad that you tied those things in there because that's helpful context. So for a final bit of context. As you were saying, a regulated state in the U.S. means that a utility has a monopoly, which is granted to them by the state legislature. And under that monopoly, they can own the whole value chain from the power plant to the transmission and distribution right through to the customer meter. And the utility is responsible for that entire value chain, including billing and customer support. Whereas a deregulated state is one where utilities are forbidden to own the entire value chain, which generally means that power plants must be owned by a different entity than the company that owns and operates everything else, although there are workarounds to this as well, such as allowing a utility holding company to own multiple subsidiary utility companies, which together comprise the entire value chain. So regulators and regulated states are responsible for overseeing every investment that utilities make, whereas in deregulated states, the generators are essentially on their own participating in a free market where they can make profits or presumably lose money, although that seems to be out of fashion now, and are not guaranteed a return on their investment, a model that we now call merchant 
efficient generation. Whereas the rest of the utility value chain is still regulated and the utilities that operate the poles and the wires and the meters and do all the billing and all the rest, they still have to apply to regulators to make investments and all that stuff. And if regulators approve those investments, then they'll be given a guaranteed profit on them. So is this kind of the complete context about the difference between a regulated and a deregulated state? Yes, although in 1996, the federal government required what they called functional separation of transmission. So you, you couldn't be a generator, transmitter, and distributor and preclude other people from using the transmission part. Most utilities set up a separate holding company. The state of Michigan required utilities to divest themselves entirely of the transmission process. So basically the transmission is open access, essentially, but you're exactly right. Generation and distribution can be owned by the same company depending on what state you're in and that creates a number of problems right and we're gonna (laughs) get into those problems in a minute so i guess the final thing we should mention is that there really are two types of state regulators as i understand it those who operate in what's called an active or legislative style where they put forward an agenda and exercise leadership that utilities are expected to follow and those who operate in more of a judicial style which is a more passive mode in which they basically rely on utilities to drive the agenda and bring them cases which then regulators can rule on, but they don't ask utilities to make investments in particular things. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, some states are much more aggressive on what they require their utilities to do. And of course, that means that the legislature or the Public Utilities Commission, those folks make decisions rather than the competitive market does. But a number of states, such as Michigan, that you are correct that if I'm the Detroit Edison or the DTE, I have to come before the Public Utility Commission to ask for a rate change or whatever, and then they listen to people coming in and and testifying and then make a decision more like a judicial style. Right. Okay. So with all that context in place, let's talk about regulatory capture. What does that mean the way that you think of it? Well, regulatory capture is where the regulatory agency, let's say you're the Public Utility Commission for the state of Ohio, you're going to provide a rate of return for the utility. They, If they're going to be a monopoly provider and they're going to build a power plant, they have to be assured that they're going to get a return on that, otherwise they'll go bankrupt. So how is the regulatory agency going to know what it costs to to build the facility or what it costs to operate the facility or those sorts of things. Well, where they're going to get their information is from the utility itself, right? Because the utility itself has much more information about what it's going to cost them to build a nuclear power plant or a coal-fired power plant or a natural gas plant. And Also, who's likely to be sitting on the board of the Public Utilities Commission? It's going to be somebody who knows something about the industry, right? I mean, they're the ones that are most likely to get appointed. And so you're going to have this direct connection between the regulators and the people being regulated. And the Nobel laureate George Stigler wrote about this many, many decades ago. Uh, he was the main developer in this field of regulatory capture, but it's, it's well known in the economics profession. Then it's really not a heck of a lot that 
you can do about it for a number of reasons that we can probably get into a little more detail. Well, as you were saying, aren't regulators always really to some extent reliant on the companies they regulate to point the way toward what they think are reasonable and necessary investments in our energy infrastructure? I mean, energy, especially electricity, is these infrastructures and markets are really complicated technical things. And at least as far as I've seen, regulators are often elected or appointed by a political official. And although it'd be nice if they have technical backgrounds, oftentimes they don't in the stuff that they're regulating. I mean, it's not like in other domains where you have to have a pretty significant background of knowledge in the thing you're in charge of. Like, for example, if you get appointed to the Federal Reserve or the Treasury, you probably worked for Goldman Sachs or some other major bank and you have, you know, deep domain experience in the area. It's possible in the utility space to be appointed or elected to a commission without having any background in energy or the utilities. So aren't regulators sort of always at risk of being bamboozled by utilities or at least asked to rule on a technical matter in which they have to rely to some extent on what the utilities are telling them because they don't have the ability independently to evaluate it. So where is the line that's crossed when we say that a regulator has been captured? Well, it's very difficult to have a regular not be captured in the sense that you're exactly right. They're going to have to rely on the company for information. Um, the companies that are being regulated, they have a strong incentive to know how the system works and to try to influence what the regulators do. Individuals, you know, you and I, are what we call in the economics profession rationally ignorant. That is, what's the cost of us learning about it versus the benefits? Like, just think about it. When was the last time any of your listeners went to a hearing in front of their utilities? I'm going to bet none of them ever have. Oh, we have some very geeky listeners, but well, generally okay. I take your point. <laughs> yeah. And so, there, yes, there's always the person that's very interested in the thing. Um, but for most of us, A, uh, it's going to be very hard for us to figure out what's going on. So we'll spend a lot of time doing that. And B, even if we know what's going on, are we likely to be as effective as the regulated industry as the as the utility company uh, in influencing what the decision is of the Public Service Commission? And the answer is we're probably not. Um, and then a sort of a final point is that we're in a system where you have dispersed costs and concentrated benefits. That is, the, the utility has lots of benefit to be made, millions and millions of dollars if they're awarded a tariff or a, a pricing scheme uh, that allows them to be highly profitable. The cost to us is relatively small. You know, maybe our your utility bill will be $50 a month more. Um, are we all going to try to somehow gather together and to overcome the arguments of the utility at the at the hearings um, when we're saving fifty dollars a month if we were to actually get our our decision made in our favor? And the answer is probably not. So whenever you have the cost dispersed amongst lots and lots of people and the benefits concentrated in a few, you're going to get regulatory capture. Yeah. You know, this reminds me of my favorite joke from my days as a computer salesman back in the 80s. What's the difference between a computer salesman and a used car salesman? The used car salesman knows when he's lying. <laughs> That's, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. wonder if regulators even know when they're being misled or when they've been captured. 
some probably do, but probably lots of them don't. And again, they don't really have a good mechanism to get their information from somewhere else. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Nine days after this interview was recorded, Consumers Energy, one of Michigan's largest utilities, said that solar is a better investment than new natural gas plants and announced that it would not seek to replace its retiring coal-fired power plants with natural gas capacity. Consumers President and CEO Patty Poppy said she prefers the lower risk of building solar capacity incrementally as needed rather than the large capital commitment of a gas plant, a theme that will be more than familiar to the listeners of this show. The company plans to eliminate its coal-fired fleet, which currently makes up 32% of its supply, end its power purchase agreements for nuclear and natural gas capacity, and ramp up its solar capacity from 12 megawatts today to 5,000 megawatts by 2040. Item 2. The parent company of Public Service Company of New Mexico, the largest electric utility in New Mexico, pumped $440,000 into a political action committee just in the few weeks before the election... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.